All right, so we're going to go back to Nahum, uh, going through the book of Nahum during the Sunday school hour. We're in chapter 2 this week, and I did a weird title for this one, but it's the title is, Did Nahum Predict Automobiles? Did Nahum Predict Automobiles? Now, the reason I even bring that up, or I even put that in the title is just because uh, this is probably what Nahum chapter 2 is most known for. Is there, we're going to look at a verse where, you know, you know it looks like I could be, talking about, uh, could, could be talking about cars, and people will go to this and say the Bible predicted automobiles and things like that. And I want to show you just kind of the, uh, the danger of uh, using the Bible that way. And uh, I want to show you, too, I think the, the key to helping people see through this, because what a lot of people will do, if they want to just teach something weird, if they want to teach something, even just something deceptive, uh, they need to find something in the Bible that goes along with an agenda they have, the best way to do that is to go use a scripture that people are not real familiar with. And then it's a little easier to get away with stuff. And, you know, when you have books like Nahum, you know, it's, it's not preached from that often, so people... They are not familiar with what's going on. They don't know the context. So somebody could just kind of pull a verse from that passage. And while I don't know anything about Nahum, I mean, it's in the Bible. So sure enough, I guess that must be true. But the fact is when we see or when we're actually familiar with the passage, when we understand the context, it makes it really hard for people to put one over on us. And that's been the key. Any passage or any scripture that you know, false teachers have ever used to confuse me, to me the key to figuring out is not just zeroing in on that one verse, but getting the context of the whole passage, like Romans 9. You know, Once I got a hold of what Romans 9 is actually talking about, it made it super easy to see how bad Calvinists are actually twisting that passage to teach the things that they teach. So let's go ahead and go through chapter 2, and we're going to mainly focus on what Nahum 2 is actually talking about. And then we're going to talk about whether it's even possible that Nahum 2 is actually prophetic about automobiles. All right. So first thing, a little bit of review. Remember, this prophecy is against the city of Nineveh. That was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire that was the world ruler during, during that time. Assyria has judgment coming to them because of what they have done to Israel. So God's going to judge Assyria. Nahum, that name too, I didn't mention this last week, but that his name, was it means comforter. And the truth is, while this passage is full of doom and gloom, this was act, there's also messages of comfort in there too, because it was comforting to God's people that the, the wicked, that their enemies were going to be judged. And, it's, and so we talked about last week how, you know, the book of Revelation, end times Bible prophecy, for us, we're comforted by it. God's going to deal with the wicked. But, you know, if you're part of the world, it's not comforting at all. So Nahum is a comforting book if you're one of God's people. It's a terrifying book if you're an Assyrian, if you're one of the wicked. So keep all those things in mind. And understand, too, we know this from the Bible, and we also know historically, that God was going to bring judgment on the Assyrians through the Babylonians. The Babylonians, during this time, they were the ones that defeated the Assyrians, and they became the next world power. 
So that's what's being prophesied here. Now, what's interesting, too, about this chapter, while this is prophetic and it's explaining how the Babylonians are going to defeat the Assyrians, the Bible doesn't go into detail about how this was fulfilled. You can't find the, the details of the fulfillment in the Bible. But you know what? You can look at history and it lines up exactly with what the Bible says was going to happen, which I think is really interesting. We'll talk about that as we get into some of the details of this prophecy. But look at verse 1. It says, He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition. Watch the way. Make thy loins strong. Fortify thy power mightily. And I believe that he that dasheth in pieces is a reference to the Babylonian army. They were very powerful. They were taking over the world. And they were going to defeat the Assyrians and become the next world power. We also see in this prophecy, God does not give them a call to repentance. God does not tell Nineveh, hey, you better call on me or these people are going to take you out. He doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't tell them to hide. He doesn't offer them some kind of way that they can save themselves. You know what he told the Assyrians? Because he was bringing the Babylonians against them for judgment. He's basically telling them, fortify yourself. Do whatever you can to stand up against these people. God wanted the Assyrians to stand up against the Babylonians because God knew the Babylonians are going to take you out and I want you all to go down. And this is a great passage too, just for these people who act like God is all, you know, lovey-dovey, you know, fluffy, cute, wonderful stuff. No, when God gets angry, it gets bloody. It gets, I mean, he flooded the whole world. Okay. Always remember that. So, this is God just showing he, is, he wants them destroyed. He wants them taken out. And that's exactly what happened to the Assyrians. So verse 2 says, For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. And the Assyrians, they were the ones that had already brought judgment on Israel, on that northern kingdom. And so now God is going to deal with them. Because even though God used them to bring judgment on his people, you don't touch God's people without judgment coming on you. And so God used a wicked people to deal with his people. And you know he didn't use a righteous people to deal with his people uh, because if you deal with his people, then you got to get judgment from God. So God, he kind of takes care of two things. You know, I'm going to let them fill up my wrath you know, and at the same time deal with Israel, and then I'm going to bring the hammer down on them. And this isn't the only place in the Bible where we see how God does that kind of thing. Uh, that's a theme that we see a lot in the Bible. So verse uh, 3 says, The shield of his mighty men is made red, the valiant men are in scarlet, the chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. And right there is the automobile prophecy verse. And this is the one that uh, everybody's going to go to. Nahum, this is probably the most popular verse in Nahum. And people will use it. It's like, look, man, that's got to be talking about something for the future. Now, I'm not going to stand here right now and tell you this can't be talking about something prophetic in the future. I'm, I'm not going to do that. But what I am going to do is I'm going to show you what you must do to make that claim. 
and still be honest with the Scriptures. And so uh, keep that in mind because we're, we're going to come back to this. But uh, th- so right here, what, what I believe this passage is showing, and this lines up with exactly what happened in history, the Assyrians, like most cities back then in that day, they were always walled. Now, we don't see that a lot today. You know, we live in America where we aren't. We're, we're a nation without walls, aren't we? You know, and, and the truth is, you know, that, that's kind of nice. Israel today is the complete opposite. They are building walls everywhere in Israel. But, you know, back in those days, um, you know, you, if you didn't have walls, it just made it easier for you to get taken over. And a lot of the cities, they would take pride in their walls because they were well fortified. They felt safe. They would have great riches there. And so they would. They would put a, a lot of uh, uh, confidence in those things. We see, too, they would put a lot of confidence in their chariots. And the Bible talks about some trusting in chariots and horses. So some people, because they had all these chariots and horses and all these things, they would look at that and say, you know, what? We're, we're safe. And in America, even though we don't have walls, you know, we can look and say, you know what, we've got nukes. You know, we've got this, we've got that. But you know what? If God decides he wants to bring judgment to us, you know what? We better not trust in those nukes. If God wants to use an army from another nation, they'll win. If God wants them to, if it's God's will. And we see in the Bible that the size of the army did not matter to God. Walls did not matter to God. Look what he did at Jericho. But again, for faithless people, that's everything. And so these are a faithless people that Nahum's talking about, the Assyrians. And basically what he's showing here when he's talking about the chariots and them jostling in the streets, he's basically telling them, you're going to have fighting within the walls of your own city. And that's not something people want. You see, in, in America today too, now, you know, Coincidentally, this wasn't in my notes, but you know, maybe my mind's just there because it's 9-11 today. But what was the thing that we heard after 9-11 all the time? We got to go fight them over there so we don't have to fight them here. Remember how they talked about that all the time? Because you know what? We don't want to see fighting in our streets, do we? You know, and we would, if if there's going to be a fight, we'd rather see it over these other countries. And obviously we're not convinced that that matters or anything, but nobody wants to see tanks and warfare and you know in their own backyard we don't we don't want to see that kind of thing and we feel safe as long as it is outside our walls and our possessions and things aren't being touched and so he's letting the assyrians know right there in your streets this is nineveh in your city in your streets nineveh the chariots are going to be flying through here like like torches like lightning they're going to they're going to come through and you're going to be fighting battles in your own streets that's what he's talking about right here. And historically, we'll talk about this in a little bit. That is exactly what happened in Nineveh, which would be shocking for the people of Nineveh to hear them say that because how are they going to get their chariots in here? Our city is very protected. We have strong walls that you know have kept us safe for years and years. How are their chariots going to get in here? And you know what? Their chariots got in there. And we'll see how they did here in a little bit. So, again, we're going to go back to this to see if there could be something. Because they're like, well, you know, it wasn't literally, you know, like, you know, like the, uh, how does it say it? They're going to run like lightning. That sounds like today. Talking about their torches. You know, we all got headlights on our cars and, you know, things like that. 
It's like, all right, just, you know, let's just talk that through. And, and we'll talk that through in a little bit just to see if we should even uh, dignify that. But um, verse 5 says, He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof. And the defense shall be prepared. So again, after he mentions there's going to be all this fighting chariots in the street and everything, he mentions their walls. He mentions their defenses being prepared. And then he says, the gates of the rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. Now, according to history, what's really interesting, a large part of the wall of Nineveh, it went right along the Tigris River. And the Bible does not record this, but history does. During that time when the, Assyri- or when the Babylonians came through and took over, there was a large flood like they never had on the Tigris River. And it took out a bunch of that wall, giving access to the people, uh, to the Babylonians to be able to get in. There was all these places where they were able to get their, get inside the city and get their chariots inside the city because a flood took out their walls. It seems as though nature is even, even working against them. It's like God said, you know what? Yeah, they're not going to be able to get in that city, but I want their chariots to get in that city. I'm going to make it possible. And he floods the Tigris River and it takes out a bunch of their walls. And another thing too, a bunch of the city was flooded as a result of that too. And we're going to see here in, uh, it says in verse, look at chapter three, chapter three and verse eight, it says, art thou better than populous know that, uh, that was situate among the rivers that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea and her wall was from the sea. So it's, there was obviously another city that was similar to the city of Nineveh that had walls that was by the water. And it's basically just kind of showing too that what history says about the Tigris River being along the wall and everything, um, you know, it, just, it shows that the Bible is actually right in what it's saying because it appears that these people are looking at their walls and they're thinking, you know, we've got all the safety, we have all these things working for us, but it's like, you know what? It's not going to matter. You know, this is of God that they're going to take you out, so your walls aren't going to protect you. Not only are the waters not going to help you in this situation, they're going to end up hurting you. And it says in verse 7, "...and Huzab shall be led away captive." She shall be brought up, and her maid shall lead her as the voice of doves, tabering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. So right there, it just shows what Nahum's prophesying here. This is exactly what happened according to history. The city got flooded during that time, and people, instead of standing and fighting, people are fleeing away. They're wanting them to stand and they're wanting them to fight, but the people are scared. They realize, you know, they're in trouble. I mean, and, you know, a flood's a scary thing. So they're just, they're just trying to get out of there. They're just trying to survive. So verse 9 says, Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. So just showing the fear that this city is going to be in. So this is, this is a scary prophecy for Nineveh. It's like you're going, to be, you're going to be 
your city is going to be flooded. All these things are going to happen. Your people are going to be on the run. Your hearts are going to melt. Your knees are going to be trembling. And your faces are going to be, uh, they're going to gather blackness. Now, I don't know for sure what that means exactly, but what some people believe is, you know, they had that practice too of covering themselves with ashes and things when they were in mourning. Uh, in some cultures, they still do that kind of thing. And so the faces gathering blackness was just a reference to the fact that these people were going to be greatly in distress and mourning because they're being destroyed. They're losing everything. Everything is falling apart for this city. This is going to be total destruction for this city. Because again, God was done with the Assyrians. God was done with this city. This has been coming for over a hundred years. God gave that generation of Jonah's day. He, he let them live because they repented. But this nation still has judgment coming and again and these are just reminders too that we we don't ever want to forget as americans something we want to pass on to our children our country has without a doubt done so much that we have not answered for and we as christians as people who believe the bible we should never be shocked no matter what happens to this country we should never get mad at god for anything he allows to happen to this country we have it coming and every day that we are not suffering in this country should just be one more day that we're thankful to God where we make sure that we as Christians do not participate in the sin and that we call as many people to repentance as we possibly can. But one of these days, I don't know when it's going to be. I just hope it's when God pours his wrath out in the end. But it might be before that. It very well might be before that. But I, you know what? Today, fire and brimstone isn't falling. Today, the armies of the enemies are not marching through here. So you know what? I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. And the way things are going in our country, I don't think we're going to see foreign armies marching through here anyway, uh, taking over. I think, we're going to see, I think they're going to have American flags on their uniforms, personally. Another subject for another day. But when that happens, we don't have anything to complain about. We let over 50 million babies get butchered in this country. And if you think we're not going to answer for that, you're crazy. When you think about all the, the fact that our country is celebrating sodomy and things like that, you know, I don't care what happens to this country. We have nothing to complain about. So let's just thank God today. Every day that we're not suffering, let's just be thankful to God because we definitely deserve all kinds of bad things. So verse um, 13 or verse 12, I'm sorry. Or no, I'm totally lost my spot. Verse uh, nine. Yeah, yeah, or eleven. That's happens. I get sidetracked. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, even the old lion, walked, and the lions whelped, and none made them afraid. The lion did tear in pieces for his whelps, and strangled uh, for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey. And his dens with raven. Now, I think these lions that are referring to are probably a reference to just the the men or the young men in their armies that they were depending on. And the Assyrians, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they both used the symbol of a lion for a lot of different things. But again, these were uh, a lot of times two people in their strength. You know, mighty men were compared to lions. And so they probably had these guys that they looked at like that, maybe even referred to them as that. And like, where are they now? 
you know, where's your soldiers now? You know, because not only are they not able to stand up against this army that's coming at them, that's going to be stronger than them, but you know, they can't even stand up against what God's bringing with the flood that's coming on this city. They're hiding. They're in fear. These people that you depended on, God is taking them out. And then it says in verse 13, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. And so what we're seeing go on here is God is showing all these things that they have trusted in. They are not going to help them in the day of trouble. And let me tell you, God is always defeating other gods in a big way. Why? Because God is a jealous God. And again, again, what things are we trusting in today? We often trust in our own military today. Well, we think we're safe because we have our military. You know what? God might use our own military against us one of these days. You say, oh, well, he won't do it. Well, maybe he won't do it that way. Maybe he'll use a different military. I don't know. You say, oh, they'll never be able to defeat the American military. Well, you know what? If they keep promoting homosexuality, if they keep recruiting trannies, and people like that that are not going to be, in, you know, helpful in a battle, then you know what? We're going to get our clocks cleaned. Okay? All, all we got to do is look at the difference between, what was it the Russian army, you know, commercials that they do recruiting and the American army's commercials recruiting? Who are you betting on in that fight? I'm betting on the Russians. Okay? I mean, you know, at least they're promoting strength and manliness. Where we're going to talk about a woman that had two moms. Listen, if if that's what our military is going to promote, we will get our clocks clean so bad. When you, and let me tell you something too. It's like, well, you know what? We've got all these guns in America. You know, they're not going to be able to fight anything on our soil. And you know what? I mean, I I understand all that, and I'm for all that. But you got to understand too. You know we're becoming a smaller and smaller number, okay? A lot of guns are being sold, but it's the same people buying them, I think, all the time. And look at these cities. Look at the people they're turning out, okay? I mean, you, you think about most of the people in this country, okay? It's not going to look like Red Dawn, you know, when the foreign armies come through here, okay? I'm sorry, we don't have tough people that know how to fight in this country, okay? You know, we've got too many guys going to be worried about breaking a nail, you know, when it all goes down, they're going to immediately surrender. And not only are they going to immediately surrender, they're going to turn us in. And that's, just, that's how it is in this pansified society that we have. And we must, uh, you know, we, we've got to stand against this stuff. Because, again, there's a lot of other people, countries out there, they don't like our country. We get in everyone's business. And one of these days, you know, some country's going to say enough's enough. And, you know, and if... If God is behind what they're doing, if God's wanting to use them to bring judgment, they will succeed. There's no doubt about it. So that's why we've got to keep on, uh, we've got to keep on standing against sin. And, God, and so the thing is, whatever we're trusting in, God will defeat it. We often trust in our finances and in the wealth of this country. You know, look at all the money. Look at, you know, look at our country too, the way it lifts up politicians, the way it lifts up celebrities. These people are going to be the death of our country as as it is you know why what's going on god is using all our gods against us god is going to defeat all our gods that we have in this country that's what he did in egypt so just understand 
that, you know, God, he's, he's always kind of had a pattern throughout the years. Whatever people are trusting in, that's what he's going to take out. I won't get the details right on this, but remember the army that said, you know, their God's the God of the hills, ours is the God of the valleys, so let's fight him in the valley. And I might be getting that mixed up. And so God, because they said that, God made sure they won there. God does not like when people put things before him because God is a jealous God and rightfully so. He is the one true God. He is the one that everybody should be following. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he is more mighty and powerful than any other gods. And when people are saying something else, just understand God will too. God's a patient God. And because he knows the end from the beginning, God will let a nation, God will let a people think that they have the victory for a while just to make the fall even harder in the end. And we are, we're living in a time right now where the, you know, the left-wingers, the, you know, the atheist crowd, they feel like they are winning. They feel like they are getting somewhere. Hey, we're really starting to change things. Pretty soon Christianity, Christians are going to be the minority. They're thinking all these things, and God will let them get that in their head. God will let them have their good feelings only because of the fact it's going to make it even worse. It's going to make judgment even more severe when they actually see the truth. So we just need to remember as Christians, while the world is rejoicing, while the wicked is rejoicing, you know what? Don't fret yourself because of evildoers. They will soon be cut down. And I imagine, well, I know for years, I mean, think about how much Jonah hated the people of Nineveh because they were a wicked people. Jonah wanted them destroyed in 40 days. Jonah, the reason he didn't want to go preach 40 days and then it should be overthrown is because he knew if they repented that God would forgive them. And, and Jonah was fine with just hanging on to that message and just waiting, you know, and letting them be destroyed. And you all know the story how that went down. But even after they repented, Jonah still went to watch and see. He went and sat on a hill somewhere to watch that city. It's like, because God hadn't said... I'm not going to destroy him. He was still hoping maybe God was going to do something when those 40 days came and God didn't destroy him. Jonah was mad. And so think about this. Israel still had to wait another 120 years. That stinks. A lot of Jonah didn't get to live to see this. But you know what? God got it done. God did it. And God is not going to do these things when we want him to, but he's going to do them. So we should always take comfort in that. So having said all that, Let's go back and at verse 4 and let's see if it's appropriate to act like what it's talking about here is something in our day. Okay, so again, look at verse 4. It says, The chariot shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in, broad, in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. And you know, Nahum, he probably got a little glimpse of, you know, 2000s. And, you know, if, if you saw that in Nahum's day, how would you explain what you're seeing? If at night, you know, you're seeing a big freeway and cars all running into each other and stuff, which typically they aren't running into each other. But at the same time, uh, you know, how, you know how, how would you explain that? Well, here's something we need to understand, all right? If you want to teach that that's talking about something prophetic in our future, uh, let's just, there's a few rules I think we need to follow. So first off, Always remember, pretty much all prophecy in the Old Testament, it had an immediate application for that time, as well as a future fulfillment for hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years later. 
Okay, that was a very common thing with Old Testament prophecy. Now, understand this too. Whenever a prophecy had a future fulfillment too, like one verse, it doesn't mean all of that passage was about the distant future. Okay, for example, for unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given. That, had a, that entire passage had an immediate application for that time that they were in in Isaiah's day, in that generation. But that one verse, it was about something several hundred years in the future about Jesus Christ. But often what people will do, they will ignore the original application and they will make the entire path, because they know one verse is about the future, they'll make the entire thing about the future. Okay? Our, our own side, and myself, we've done that before, even with things like Matthew 24. Because there are verses that we know are about the return of Jesus Christ, we have ignored for years the original application and the original purpose of that passage and we've made every bit of it about the future, and we're looking for stuff that we don't need to look for. That's not right. We shouldn't do that. And so, uh, so I say all that to say it's not inappropriate to take one verse from a passage like Nahum and to make it about something in the future when the rest of it is about something that's already happened. So do we all understand that? So that could happen. It could be something like that. So another thing too, though, before we ever get dogmatic about a future portion of prophecy, we need to make sure we know what the immediate fulfillment was. And so understand if somebody is clueless about what Nahum is actually about, but they all know they're all an expert on that one verse. They probably haven't done enough study where we should listen to them at all. And again, same thing too with a lot of there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that I believe are about the millennial reign of Christ, but we've got a lot of people today teaching weird stuff from it, making all of it about the future because they have no idea what the original application of that was. They'll go to Jeremiah, they'll make every bit of it about the future and about the millennium because they have no idea about the fulfillment that took place you know, in that day when God brought Israel back from Babylonian captivity. And the thing is, when you know what the immediate fulfillment of that was, of that day, and then you hear somebody making all of it about the future, like, whoa, time out. No, yeah, I, I see what you're talking about, Israel being restored to their land. That happened. But they act like it happened in 1948. And it's like, no, no, this part already happened. Uh, but look at this one part here about the, you know, Wolf dwelling with a lamb. That's clearly... Okay, I get that. We see prophecies work that way a lot in the Bible, but you don't have a right to make the entire thing about the future. But that's what a lot of people are doing, and we don't, we don't want to do that. So never give credibility to somebody who has no idea what the immediate application of that prophecy was, what it meant in that day, uh, and let them take the whole, make the whole thing about future. And so, because if we don't, if we don't follow this practice, we're going to try forcing the entire passage into our future, and it's not possible. You cannot make Nahum 2 all about the future. You can't do it. And, and you don't have to. You can take one verse, just one verse, but be careful you taking one verse. I prefer to use one that the Bible takes, you know, like the, the, or the apostles used. For example, 
Um, on uh, Wednesday, we looked at Act, or, um, Amos 9, 11, and 12. Now, if I was reading Amos, I wouldn't put that in the future by myself. I would have made it just about what Amos was talking about in his day. But you know what? If James did, if, if he interpreted it that way, if it was written in the Scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that way, then absolutely we'll take Amos 9, 11, and 12, and we'll talk about the immediate fulfillment that was in that day and the future fulfillment that took place uh, uh, you know, later. So uh, it's about being consistent. And so, we should, so I don't think we should ever get dogmatic about dual fulfillments unless the Bible clearly indicates that there will be. For example, things like the abomination of desolation. I believe the abomination of desolation has happened but I believe, I believe one happened before the time of Christ. I, I think what Daniel was directly speaking of in, uh, in the book of Daniel was about what happened during the Greek Empire. I believe that. But Jesus also said, when you see this, so Jesus was talking about something that was coming in their future too. There was definitely a dual fulfillment there. So we can get dogmatic about that because Jesus did. But we can't go and take everything from Daniel and make it about the future, because it had fulfillments in that day. Um, we, ha- we have examples too, like, out of Egypt have I called my son. We know that was a dual fulfillment, okay? Because like, the Bible tells us it was, but we don't have the right to just go take any prophecy in the Bible at all that we know has been fulfilled and just declare dual fulfillment. That's, that's not right at all. So if we're going to speculate, too, and if you want to speculate, and I don't think it's wrong to speculate, as long as your speculation does not violate the Scripture, I don't think it's wrong to speculate. But I do think you need to have some kind of consistent interpretation. Okay, And so, for example, if verse 4 is about modern times and automobiles, okay, and I'm not saying it's not possible, here's the question, though. What street or city is it talking about? When was the fulfillment? Because this has been going on for quite a while now. So, at, you know, at what point did this happen? So, okay, so, all right, yeah, it is about automobiles, but what does that even mean? Why is God prophesying and letting us know automobiles were going to come someday? When you start thinking about it that way, it's like, you know, if it doesn't, if there's no purpose to it, if it's not revealing anything to us, if it's not teaching us anything, if it's not helping us understand something that's going on in our day, then is that even what it's about? So when you actually stop and think about this, it's like, okay, what does that even mean then? You know, what, what do we get? What does this help prepare us for? What does this help us understand? Uh, you know, it, it really, it really doesn't do anything. You know, what, you know, say, because this too, this is about judgment. I showed last week at chapter one, how I do think there's like a parallel too that we can use about just the final judgment that's coming on the world, how that's good news for us. It's bad news for them. But we also have a verse too that was quoted in the New Testament. But here it's talking specifically about judgment in Nineveh. It's talking specifically about how they're going to be fighting in their own streets. Chariots of the enemy are going to be in their own streets. What specific event or what coming judgment would that be about today? There's been fighting like this in streets all over the world for a long time. So, um, 
it's one of those things where it's just like, you know, maybe we don't need to act like Nahum prophesied about automobiles. Until we understand how this, how this would even tie into any specific thing in the future, maybe I'll just leave stuff like that alone. Okay? If you want to speculate, that's fine. But I'm just, I can't even imagine what I would see today that we haven't seen a lot already and say, that's Nahum 2.4 right there. Because that's what would happen too in, in the book of Acts whenever they would notice prophecies of the Old Testament were being fulfilled, especially like dual fulfillment ones. They, this is what was spoken of by the prophet and then they would quote it. What could we possibly see that we haven't seen a million times already where we'd say, this is Nahum 2.4. This is it. You know, cars are running into each other in Rock Falls. They're right there. Nahum saw this. Are we sure? You know, or you go to a demolition derby. This is it. It's like, that really fulfills no purpose at at that point. So, you know, I I don't know that I would really want to go there. It's interesting speculation, but I I don't have any desire to try to make this verse about the future. But if I was going to make it about the future, that's what I would try to do. I would try to tie it to some kind of prophetic event that we believe is coming. Try to tie it to some kind of place so everyone would understand, you know, what it was all about. But, you know, most people talking about cars, you know, they don't even know the original application of this passage. Therefore, they're probably unqualified to speak of, uh, unqualified to speak about this type of thing. And so Nahum is ultimately about the utter destruction of the Assyrians, of Nineveh. And God did that. You know what was interesting too? The ancient city of Nineveh, it wasn't even discovered, rediscovered until the year 1850. That's when they rediscovered the ruins. It got destroyed so bad. It was. It was just left alone. You know, it just, things grew over it. And people didn't even know where that city was until 1850 is when they discovered some of the ruins. And, I mean, think about a city that great that people kind of forgot where it was. For a long time. That's the kind of destruction that they got. And you know what? I mean, you know, that that should be comfort to us. God thoroughly did what he said he was going to do to Nineveh. And you know what? God's going to thoroughly do what he said he's going to do to the enemies that we have today. And I say, praise the Lord. I find that I find that comforting. And, you know, I wish he'd do it in my time. But, you know, his time will be better. And when, it, when that time comes, you know what we're going to do? We're going to be up in heaven, and we're not going to be crying when, that, when that's going on, when he's pouring out those vials. We're going to be rejoicing. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray this message was uh, helping to comfort everyone. We thank you that you always keep your word, and we're thankful, Lord, that uh, you are going to judge wicked. And I pray you'll help us to just trust in you and uh, take comfort in the fact that you always do what you say. And I pray you'll help us to be patient. And... Uh, be willing to submit to your timing on things. In your name we pray. Amen.